Well, welcome again to Bible Center. I'm Matt Friend, the senior pastor. It is great having you here. Thank God for you. Love the kids' choir, all those who are involved, along with those of you who served at the parade yesterday. How many of you passed out chocolate or were involved in the float in some way at the Charleston parade? Will you raise your hand? Got a few of you around here. Yeah, thank God for you. Uh, I really, really wanted to, to join you. I love parades. I love it that we're involved in the Charleston parade. But it was originally supposed to be on December 1st, but it got moved to the 8th due to weather. And I'd already had plans to be out of town with the, for the 8th. I already made a commitment, so I wasn't able to be at the parade. But I still had a great day. I had to suffer and go up to the WVU Coliseum and watch us beat Pitt uh, last night. Hopefully you were able to catch that on TV. Had a lot of fun. It was my first time in the Coliseum. And the friend I went with said, We've, our seats are right behind Coach Huggins. And so I was hoping to meet him. As a kid, I was able to meet Gail Catlett. I had about 15 seconds of airtime on the radio with Coach Catlett uh, back when I was like in third or fourth grade. Uh, I got to meet Tony Caridi here about a month or two ago. But I was hoping to get, get to meet Bob Huggins, looking forward to the opportunity. So I met at his house at 8 o'clock yesterday, my friend that is, not Coach Huggins. And we drove up to Morgantown as he's driving. I'm Googling, you know, learning about where all he's coached, where he's from. Again, hoping I might have the opportunity to meet him. We get to the Coliseum and I walk in and it was like a kid at Disney for the very first time. I'm looking around. This is really nice. It's not much to look at on the outside, but even though it's old, it's a great place to play basketball on the inside. I'm taking pictures. I'm shooting video. You know, I'm posting. Had tourists written all over me as I'm walking in. And we, we get there about an hour early, and sure enough, almost within arm's reach was Coach Huggins doing a pregame interview with Tony Caridi. And so my buddy asked me, he says, I know Coach Huggins, do you, do you want to meet him? And, and everything inside of me wanted to say yes, but I tell my wife, my life goal is not to be that reverend, not to be that pastor from Pride and Prejudice, you know, that movie where he always introduces himself and he butts into all kinds of conversations. I refuse to be that guy. Uh, so I was like, no, no, it's not that big a deal. I was totally lying, right? I hope the Lord will forgive me because I really wanted to meet him, but I thought, you know, I'm not going to barge in. So I actually didn't get to meet him, but I wrote down several things I learned about Coach Huggins by sitting this close to him during the basketball game. thought I'd share those with you. First of all, he is a big dude, right? I wouldn't mess with him. Number two, he doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. He was wearing a gas station jacket, literal gen, little general gas station jacket. And I'm like, why is he wearing a gas station jacket? And then I learned that with that gas station jacket came millions of dollars of donations, and then it all made sense. Um, he doesn't care what the refs think about him. His hair actually shakes when he's mad. I don't know how you do that. It takes talent, but his hair shakes when he's mad. He has a nervous twitch with his fingers, right? So like the cheerleaders are doing this, and he does this uh, most of the game. Next time you're close to him, watch him. Uh, but I learned that he loves his players very, very much. He hugs them, even though he screams at them and can peel the paint off the wall with his words. He hugs them, he loves them, and they love him. And it is obvious after being that close for the entire game. You see, I knew a lot about Coach Huggins. I knew some about Coach Huggins from a distance, but I was able to learn a lot more when I got close. And maybe you know a lot about Jesus from a distance, but this morning I want to help you learn even more by getting close. We're going to go close in God's Word and see who Jesus really is. 
Now, I realize this morning I'm speaking to several different kinds of folks. Maybe you've grown up in church. You have the flannel graph Jesus. You know, it was the same character that you used for Moses and the whale and Jesus, you know, on the flannel graph. And you've heard about Jesus since you were a kid. And this morning, I want to encourage you that it's going to take more than flannel graph storyboard Jesus to get you through life. You know that. You already sense that. And so today, I want to help you by preaching and lifting up the Jesus of the Bible. Maybe you're new to Christianity, and you've been talking to your friends. Hey, how do I share with my friends who Jesus really is? Maybe you've got a friend that really wonders, is Jesus God? What do you say? How can you prove that? If that's you, this message will help you as well. I hope you'll take a lot of notes. We're going to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. But we're going to prove from the Bible that Jesus is the mighty God. But maybe you're not yet a believer. You're not yet sure what you think about Christianity. You're even the person of Jesus Christ. I prayed this morning that this message would help move you from just seeing him as a good teacher or an enlightened prophet, but actually seeing him for who he is. We're in the middle of a series called Hope Has a Name, and we've been looking at the four names of Jesus from Isaiah 9-6. He is the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So today we're looking at that number two of four names. He is the Mighty God. I want to tell you how the next few minutes are going to go. That way, if you're taking notes, uh, you can easily follow along. I want to start by telling you what it means to be mighty God. What does mighty God mean? And then I'm going to try to prove for the bulk of the message that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of that, that he is mighty God. We're going to look at a lot of verses, but again, it moves quickly. And then lastly, I want to try to inspire you. I really want to encourage you to give your burdens, to give your dreams, to give your prayer requests to the mighty God. Maybe you've quit praying for that thing the Lord has put on your heart. Maybe you feel like there's no hope. My goal today is to encourage and inspire you to pray prayers big enough and bold enough for a mighty God. So let's dive in together into God's word. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Will you stand with me out of respect for the Bible I read from the NIV. The words will also be on the screen. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What does this famous Christmas verse teach us about the person of Jesus? Well, first of all, it teaches us that Jesus, our mighty God, came to save us. Jesus, our mighty God, came to save us. The context of Isaiah 9-6, as I said last week, is important for understanding this verse was first given not at Christmas time per se, but it was given to people who needed salvation. They didn't just need spiritual salvation, but they needed physical, literal salvation from their circumstances. 
You see, the people to whom this verse was written were the people of southern Israel. We call that the kingdom of Judah. And Judah was being attacked by their enemies. Their enemies at the time were Syria. Their enemies included the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were surrounding even some of their cities to the north. The king of Israel, the king of Judah, Ahaz, knew that in order for God to save them, to save his people, he needed to turn his heart back to the Lord. But like some of us sometimes, he didn't want to. He knew that to turn his heart back to the Lord would mean that he would have to put the Lord first in his life, his lifestyle would change, and that's not something he wanted. And so he refused to trust in mighty God, but instead trusted in mighty nations. The nation to the far north was Assyria. At this time, Assyria was the world's superpower. Long before Babylon, long before Persia, long before Greece, long before Rome, Assyria ruled that part of the world. Modern-day Syria, modern-day Iraq, some of Iran, uh, even some of modern-day Turkey. And so the king of the north thought, well, if I make an alliance with powerful Syria, Assyria, mighty Assyria, can protect me from my enemies. And the prophet Isaiah, you can picture Pastor Isaiah looking Ahaz right in the eye and saying, Assyria is no match for the mighty God. Assyria is no match for the mighty God. Turn your heart back to God, Ahaz. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to prove it by telling you God will give you a sign. As we heard last week, the sign is a baby. He said, God's going to give you a sign. It's going to be a baby, and this baby is going to bring salvation to your nation. Now, who was the baby? It's like one of those Lord of the Rings cryptic messages. Who was the baby? What is he talking about? Well, there's probably two applications. The first application is probably King Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. He says this baby is going to bring some level of salvation to your nation right now. When Hezekiah was born and grew into be a young but mighty king, Hezekiah saved his father's nation. Hezekiah, really for over a hundred years, brought a sense of revival to the southern kingdom. And so in that way, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 immediately applies to Hezekiah. But most scholars believe, and we believe today, that the verse more appropriately applied to Jesus into the distance. Because Jesus is the only one who could fulfill the entire description given about this baby in Isaiah 9-6. Think of the prophecies of the Old Testament a lot like mountains. You're standing on the edge of a, a mountain in West Virginia and you're looking off into the distance. You see two mountains side by side, or at least you think they're side by side. But there could actually be miles between them if you were to fly overhead. They look like they're connected, but actually they're separated by a great distance. So the immediate mountain, the immediate fulfillment of Isaiah 9-6 was probably a Hezekiah. But the ultimate fulfillment was the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who could fulfill both verses. Now how do we know it best applies to Jesus? Because of the names he uses for the baby. Last week we heard about the mighty, or the, well, the wonderful counselor. This morning we're going to hear about the mighty God. If you're taking notes, the word 
Of course, mighty God comes from two words. It's in your bulletin, El Gibor, which is short for mighty God or warrior God. We see this name El refers to God in verses like Isaiah 7, 14, when he says the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. The L in Emmanuel is the same word for God in Isaiah 9, 6. So clearly, this particular passage is referring to God. When combined, it's the Lord himself. If you're taking notes, you want to write down Isaiah 10, verses 20 and 21. Clearly, it has to be God. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. It's the same Hebrew word, the El Gabor. So two chapters later, one chapter later, this verse clearly doesn't apply to a human being or just to a mere human being. But it refers to someone who is divine. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 says, To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. So, so far in this verse, he's talking about somebody who owns the sun, the moon, the stars. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, comma, mighty. There's a comma in the English language, but it's not there, of course, in the Hebrew. It's literally the El Gabor, the same name from Isaiah 9-6, the mighty God who is awesome. He shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Nehemiah 9-32, now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. Same word, God mighty, mighty God. Psalm 24, 8. Who is the king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Same word. Jeremiah 32, 17 and 18. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you, great and mighty God. Same word, El Gabor, God whose name is the Lord Almighty. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. I love this verse. In his love, the mighty warrior's love, he will no longer rebuke you, but rejoice over you with singing. Without a doubt, if we believe the Bible is the word of God, there can be no question that Isaiah was ascribing deity to the baby. This baby would have to be God in the flesh. When you get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers all over the place point back to this word, the mighty God. We see two short instances in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Talking about Jesus. He would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
Matthew eleven twenty. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. If you're looking for one verse that sums this whole truth up, that God could somehow come in the flesh, my favorite verse is Colossians 2, 9. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, there are 300 prophecies about Jesus' birth, and th- excuse me, 322, and 322 came true. If we compare that to Nostradamus, Nostradamus had about a thousand prophecies, many of which he gave by staring into a boiling pot of water. Scholars believe that at best, 12 of Nostradamus' prophecies came true. 12 out of a thousand. Now, you baseball players know that if you get 12 hits out of a thousand at-bats, you're probably not going to keep your job. You're definitely not going to keep your position. But Jesus had 322 out of 322. He was batting a thousand. Jesus is the mighty God. You can read the stories of the New Testament. Matter of fact, if you're looking for a Bible reading plan in the new year, one of the ways to begin reading your Bible is just to start in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 and start reading through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're new to church, we're going to be around in the lobby. I'd love to show you where that is. But as you read through those, you'll hear stories like this. One of Jesus' first early miracles was out on the sea when a storm came and nearly sunk the boat. Or at least the disciples thought the boat was going to sink. Jesus is sleeping on a cushion, Mark says. He's sleeping soundly. Maybe he's snoring. And the disciples are freaking out. The disciples go down to where Jesus is sleeping, particularly Peter. Peter freaks out and says, Lord, wake up. Don't you care? We're going to die. Now, I'm not a movie producer. If I was a movie producer, I would cast Peter as Will Ferrell, right? Will Ferrell would make a great Peter because he like goes from zero to 60 like that. He just flips out. He freaks out. He's like, Jesus, don't you care? You can picture Jesus as he wakes up. He was fully God, but he was also fully human. Wipes the sleep out of his eyes. Maybe he's wondering where his coffee is. He gets up and walks to the top of the boat. And he looks out at the weather, unfazed, not afraid. And he just says, peace, be still. You could could translate it this way, knock it off, right? Quit. He just looks at the weather and says, peace, be still. And immediately the weather is calmed. Jesus does to the weather what you and I do to our car when our alarm goes off. You ever had that happen? Your car alarm goes off, you know, hit the wrong button in your pocket, and your car's you know, going off, and you're like, who's crazy person's car? Oh, that's my car. And you walk out, and you push the button, and with a couple clicks, your car stops. You're like, hey, I'm sorry, that's my car, I'll make it quit. Jesus walks up on top of the boat, hey, I'm sorry, this is my weather, I'm going to make it quit. And he stops the weather. It literally obeys him. That's exactly what Isaiah said would happen. Jesus is the mighty God. I love what C.S. Lewis famously wrote in Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis writes, that is not the one thing That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who says, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man we are talking about was either was and is just what he said or else a lunatic or something worse. I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This God of heaven came for a reason. Isaiah chapter 9 gives us the reason that Jesus came. Let me encourage you this week to read through Isaiah 9. It's beautiful and it's quoted in Matthew chapter 4. But Isaiah says the reason this baby would come was more than just salvation from Syria or salvation from the northern kingdom. The reason the baby needed to come was because we needed saving from our sin. We needed saving from our darkness. Isaiah 9-2. The people walking in darkness. He says when the baby comes, the people walking in darkness will see a great light. On those living in the land, a, a deep darkness, a light has dawned. He's speaking in past tense about something that will happen. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew quotes this. Think of this. 800 years later, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, points back to the baby and he says, Jesus is the baby Isaiah told us would come to save us from darkness. Verse 16 and 17, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Our greatest need, Isaiah says, is to be saved from darkness. Different Bible writers use different words, to, different images to talk about what we need saving from. But Isaiah chooses darkness, which I find to be interesting. You ever think about how you learn to think dark thoughts? Who taught you to think dark thoughts? Who taught you to be greedy? Who taught you to be mean? Who taught you to gossip? Who taught you to lie? Who taught you to steal? Who taught you to lust? Now, certainly we can all think of people in our lives. I can think of people growing up that made some of these things easier and maybe showed us how to do it without getting caught. But nobody had to teach us darkness. Think about it. We were born knowing how to do dark things. And Jesus says, that's the reason I came, to save you from the darkness. Now, I said a few minutes ago that Jesus wasn't scared of the storm. He wasn't. It was nature. It was something created. It was good. It was beautiful. But he controlled it, like you control your car. Jesus wasn't scared of demons. 
Remember what Jesus did to the demons who were speaking to him and Jesus cast them out and actually cast them into a group of of pigs and sent them over a cliff. It's an interesting story. Why was he being so specific in that story? Well, with the time it was written, the people knew the pig farmer, right? That's why God's so detailed in the Gospels, because the people who were alive when those books were written, they still remember the story, and they still knew the pig farmer. Jesus wasn't scared of demons. He wasn't scared of the weather. He wasn't scared of disease. He wasn't afraid. He touched people who had life-threatening illness. He didn't wash his hands, didn't wear gloves. He wasn't scared of illness. He controlled illness. But there was one thing that scared Jesus immensely. There was one thing that made him so scared and so burdened and so broken. And if I could say it even almost fearful without crossing the line of sin, it was your darkness and my darkness and the price that must be paid to save us from that darkness. You say, Pastor Matt, how can you prove that? Go in your mind with me to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're new to church, this is the place where Jesus was praying just outside of Jerusalem the night before he was crucified. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it's the only time we see Jesus scared. We see Jesus almost fearful. We see Jesus burdened. We see Jesus broken in a way we've never seen him broken before. Why? Think about it. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he sweats. The night before he crucified, he sweats as if it were great drops of blood. He goes to his friends three times and he says, hey, can't you even stay awake with me? Can't you even talk with me? Why in the world do you keep falling asleep? He wanted his friends with him at a moment of weakness. Why? What would make Jesus so afraid? The gospel writer Luke tells us why. In one short verse, Jesus looks at his enemies and Jesus says, This is your hour and the power of darkness is among us. Luke uses the same image Isaiah uses and he's talking about the price that Jesus is about to pay. It's not the nails. It's not the whip. It's not the crown of thorns. But there's something Jesus is going to have to do the next day that nearly broke him in half. And that was much more than paying a physical death. But Jesus would have to die a spiritual death. He would have to step into our darkness having never sinned himself so that we could have his light. He would have to step into our eternal punishment so we could have eternal salvation. He would have to temporarily step into our hell so that we could one day step into heaven. Jesus, as God of very gods, didn't just come to earth to put on a magic show. Jesus came to save us From darkness. The next time your kids are scared of the dark, think about the compassion. Well, we're not always compassionate because we're sinners. But think about the compassion that most of the time we have when our kids were little, when they were scared of the dark. You get out of bed for the 14th time. You go and you turn on the 14th nightlight. You look behind the door. You open the closet. There's no boogeyman in here, Right? We step into the darkness for our children because we love them. That's exactly why Jesus stepped into the darkness for us. 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to call you right there in your seat, right in this moment, to believe in him as your Lord and Savior, because he is mighty God who came to save you. There's one other description. We're just looking at two this morning. The other one doesn't take nearly as long, but it's just as important. Number one, Jesus, our mighty God, came to save us. But number two, Jesus, our warrior God, came to fight for us. Jesus, our warrior God, came to fight for us. The word mighty, it's in your notes and your bulletin, but it's again the Hebrew word gibor. It occurs 42 times in the New Old Testament. It's a military word referring, referring to a brave warrior. I wrote down some of my favorite warrior movies. Maybe you have yours. Some of my favorites are Braveheart, Robin Hood, the old one and the new one, Gladiator, Thor. I mean, who doesn't like Thor, right? The Patriot. Some of you like The Patriot. The Black Panther. That's a newer movie for me, but I like that. I like that movie, the message that it has. But this idea of Gabor is warrior. In the Old Testament, this describes all warriors human and divine. So the word by itself doesn't automatically refer to God. It's when it's combined with the word Elohim or God, then we know it's God. But let me read you just a few verses. You can see them on the screen of instances where it applies to a human. You West Virginia hunters, men and women, you'll like Genesis chapter 10 and verses 8 and 9. He's talking about Cush. Cush was the father of Nimrod who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Some of you, that's your life verse, right? Get that engraved on your deer rifle. Uh, Joshua 1.14, he says, Your wives and children and livestock may remain here in the land. Moses assigned to you on the east side of the Jordan River, but your strong warriors, he's talking about human warriors, fully armed, must lead the other tribes across the Jordan to help them conquer the territory. Judges 6.12 is another one. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He saw something in Gideon that Gideon didn't see in himself. 2 Samuel 23 and verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. In most societies, warrior, a warrior is the most precious commodity. If you have a warrior as a friend, you know you're safe. Now, we don't think much about that because we live in a relatively peaceful uh, society. But those men and women, those of you who've served our country in the military, uh, you know that our world isn't as peaceful as some of us like to think it is. If you didn't do what you did, I couldn't do what I do in a free country. So I would argue even in 2018, we still live in a society where warriors are among the most precious commodity. Think about The Walking Dead, Michonne, Rick, Daryl. These are all warriors. But in the Old Testament, not only does it describe human warriors, it also describes divine warriors. And if you're taking notes, this is too important to miss. In Isaiah 9-6, we know it's a divine warrior because he puts the word God with it. Elohim Gabor. The God warrior. Psalm 45 and verse 3. 
He says, put on your sword, almighty warrior. You are so glorious and majestic. Talking about God. Isaiah 42, 13, the Lord will march forth like a mighty hero. He will come out like a warrior full of fury. He will shout his battle cry and crush all of his enemies. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. That'd be a great verse for some of you this week. Deuteronomy 1.30, the Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. 2 Chronicles 32.8, this is written by Hezekiah, the son of King Ahaz. This son of the king learned who the real warrior was. 2 Chronicles 32.8, he may have a great army, talking about the enemy, but they are merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us to fight our battles for us. Hezekiah's words greatly encouraged the people. These verses point in the New Testament to Jesus himself. I learned something this week that I didn't know and I can't wait to share. Luke chapter 2 in verses 13 and 14 picks up on the theme of Jesus the warrior. And it's right there in the manger scene. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Suddenly, an angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Some of our old translations use the word host. The heavenly host. And we're like, yeah, heavenly host. A host is somebody that outback, that takes me to my table. That's not what the word host means. It means heavenly armies. Notice with me, if you will, in Luke chapter 4, in verse 18, Jesus talking himself, he describes himself as a warrior. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives the victory through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.15, the best verse, in my opinion, that describes Jesus as a warrior. He says, in this way, Jesus, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Let's skip ahead to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. In Revelation 19.11, we see the warrior at the end of time as we know it. He says, then I saw heaven opened. And a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. This is the same person of Jesus in the manger. But it's when Jesus comes again. His eyes were like flames of fire. On his head were many crowns. A name was written on him. Some kind of a tattoo, a heavenly tattoo that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. And on his robe and his thigh was written a title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is not a pansy. Jesus Christ is not somebody you can beat up. Jesus Christ is not still the baby in the manger. But on Christmas, I want to declare that Jesus Christ is King of kings. And he is Lord of lords. Some of you this week, you need the message of Jesus in the manger. But some of you this week, you need the message of Jesus the warrior. Because you need somebody to fight for you where you are right now. Some of you have been beat down this week by the world. And I want to encourage you, Jesus is fighting for you. Some of you have been beat down by the flesh, your own flesh. You're tempted to do things you don't want to do, but you do them anyway in weak moments. These addictions come up. These temptations come up. Jesus is still fighting for you. Some of you have been beat down by the devil. We don't want to give the devil too much credit, but there's a spiritual war still going on, and you know it. This week, some of you have felt it. I want to declare Jesus is fighting for you. I spoke with two of our members this week who received some terrible news. One of them via phone, one of them via text. We're all going to get together here this week. You think about receiving news that changes your entire life. Yes, you need Jesus in a manger. But this week, some of you need Jesus, the warrior, to know that even where you are, Jesus is fighting for you. We have not because we ask not, the scriptures say. That doesn't mean that God's going to give us everything we ever want. Sometimes the answer is no. But there's one thing for sure. There's nothing in life that can take away the greatest gift Jesus promises us. And that is the gift of resurrection that the warrior fought to win on the cross. And three days later, he, he gained victorious. Jesus Christ never promises you freedom from your circumstances, temporal earthly healing, riches. He never promises that life's going to always go your way. But he does promise you that one day death will not be the final word for you. But that in resurrection, in eternity, you will experience the victory of the warrior. Because Jesus has already fought the battle. But I still want to encourage you this Christmas to pray prayers so big that only a mighty God can answer. Pray prayers so big only a mighty God can answer. This is my question to finish the message this morning. It's simply this. What Christmas wish do you have that's so big only the mighty God can fulfill it? What Christmas wish do you have that's so big only a mighty God can fulfill it? Is there somebody in your life that you've been praying, used to pray for, that they would come to faith in Jesus, but you've quit praying? Let me encourage you to pray like you've never prayed before. Jesus is a mighty God. Is there some burden on your heart you've prayed for that God would take away, but you've almost quit praying because you're just not sure God's strong enough to do it? Pray like you've never prayed before. 
Is there some need in your family, some need in the city, some ministry that you only wish that God would bring relief to the city of Charleston, that God would bring relief to people that you love? Pray like you've never prayed before because God is a mighty God. On your seats when you came in, there were Christmas ornaments. If you couldn't find them when you came in, that means you were probably sitting on them. Um, but around you, there should be Christmas ornaments. Hopefully those got passed out in between the services. If you grab one of those Christmas ornaments, I want to encourage you to write on the ornament what it is that you're praying the mighty God will do. What we'd like to do is actually out in the gathering space, make a tree with all the requests that you're praying for. Now, if it's a person, please don't write their last name. Uh, do me that favor. Do you that favor. But if it's a person, write their first name. Hey, I'm praying for so-and-so, or I'm praying for a friend, I'm praying for a cousin. If it's a burden you have, be as specific as you like. If it's a ministry, you're praying God will start, or a need of brokenness in our city, be specific. And this Christmas, let's pray prayers so big, only a mighty God can answer our prayers. Let's pray together, and I'll give you time to fill out your ornament. Father, thank you. For brothers and sisters, thank you for the opportunity to pray big prayers this season. Lord, you do say we have not because we ask not, and so we're going to keep asking until you tell us no. Lord, I'm asking for those prayers of healing would be answered this season. I'm praying for provision for people that have great financial need would be met this season. I'm praying for neighbors, for parents, for children who are away from you, away from the church altogether. I pray they would be answered this season because we have such a mighty God. This Christmas, lift our eyes to see how big Jesus really is. Will you take a minute right where you sit if you found an ornament somewhere near you, if you would just simply write out what your prayer request is, in a moment the offering basket's going to be passed, and you can drop those in, the baskets, as they're passed. We'll collect those at the end of the service so we can all pray together as a church family. Take a minute, pray those prayers, fill out those requests. Our Lord, help us to be a faith-filled people. We believe you love this city more than we love this city. And we pray that what happens in this city, Lord, your will will be done in Charleston as it is in heaven. We don't really see that right now. Help us to pray big prayers for Charleston. God, save family members this Christmas. Provide for people in amazing ways. 
not so that we can live lives of selfishness, but so that we might give ourselves to others. Lord, you hear our hearts, you hear our requests. And as we spend this Sunday and even next Sunday collecting huge requests, I pray that we would turn our eyes to a huge, a great, and mighty God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. At the end of every service, we do three things. We pray, we just did that, and then we give and then we sing. Before the ushers come in a moment, I want to show you a video about what some of your giving has accomplished this year, and then we'll take our offering, and then we'll sing. Watch this video with me. My name's Michelle Thompson, and I have my dream job as director of City Ministries. I have had an opportunity this year to do so many things and see God work in amazing ways. Um, my goal is to help you at Bible Center to get into the city, to get involved, get down into the town that we all love so very much. We can make a difference and we are making a difference. Because of your generosity, we've been able to do so many things in the city. We're looking to help in Clendenin again, still two years following the flood. Some families are still displaced. We partner and help at Recovery Point on occasion, as well as other places throughout the city. Um, we have an opportunity to partner with agencies that are looking at drug addiction from not just the medical, but also the emotional and personal and spiritual aspect. This year, we were able to teach a parenting class at Union Mission Drug Recovery Programs. It was honestly one of my favorite hours of the week. I made some dear friends there and had an opportunity to share the love of Christ with them in hopes that we can help them get their children back from foster care and be strong, healthy families. Already in just nine months with a City Ministries, we've started a foster closet, um, helped the homeless downtown, Sojourner Shelter. We're very active there as well as at the Crossroads Men's Shelter. One individual we at Bible Center helped get a job as well as housing. Um, someone in our congregation was so very generous and helped them find housing. God is on the move and doing great things. How many more people are we going to be able to help in the coming years? Whether you've donated your time or come and use your talents to make a difference, or whether you've donated to one of the causes that we are trying to help, thank you. And for those of you that want to make a difference and want to feel like you're making a difference in the city for the Lord, come and join us. I invite the ushers to join me at the front as they're coming invite you to take a minute and ask the Lord what he would have you give this Christmas. One of the things on my ornament I'm hanging out in the gathering space is our need for December. It's actually less than it's ever been since I've been here. You've been giving generously this year, but we're going to need a total of about $716,000 in the month of December to end on budget, ready to go into the new year. And I'm confident God will do it. He's done even greater things in years past. And so if you'd like to contribute to that, there's envelopes right there in your seats. There's also a number of ways. There's six different ways to give. You can give online. You can give on the app. You can give via text. There's a lot of ways. Uh, you know how to do all that. But we can also give to the All-In Challenge. The All-In Challenge is a way to set us up 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now for success by eliminating, crushing our remaining debt. In the, last one, in the last seven months, you guys have given $1.9 or $1.9 million has been used to pay down our debt already. In seven months, I believe there's four or five months left, we can do amazing things if we'll work together. Will you give this Christmas season? Let's give not out of duty, but out of worship to a mighty God. 
who has done so much for us. Let's give now to the Lord.